What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? Hi there, it's Paul, and you're listening to What the Footy, the football business podcast that goes behind the scenes and gives fans, industry experts, athletes, aspiring sports professionals, and more unrivaled insight into football, business, and how the beautiful game is evolving. Here is what I have lined up for you today. What I think we can bring to the table is to really be able to inject some capital and some resources and some expertise that... I hope you love it. Not like it, I hope you love it. So if you're locked in and listening, give the pod a follow and a five-star review and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now it's important. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans. Welcome to the What The Footy podcast, Nancy. Great to have you here today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Nice. Great to, great to speak to you and find out more about some of the stuff that you're currently doing right now and the things that you've done in the past as well. And I feel, feel really privileged as well that you've, that you've also <laughs> evicted the dog from the room for the podcast as well. So, <laughs> so yeah. Just, just for the list to just kind of explain to them which part of the states you're from as well. I always love speaking to people out in the states and and, sure. and also getting their perspective on 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 football as well. Sure, I live in uh, just outside of Chicago, so the in Illinois, um, about twenty miles west of the city. Have been here pretty much my whole life. No, awesome. The question I ask all the guests when they come on is, "What is football to you? A business or a sport?" And why? And it's a great question. So I think from where I'm standing with Mercury 13, it's a business. When you think about the fact that people get paid and depend on whether it's the trainers, the coaches, the people who are marketing, selling tickets, running concessions and same, all these people depend on this business, right? And so I think you have to treat it like a business. You have to make sure it's successful as a business. Now that said, for the fans and for the players themselves, it has to show up differently. It has to show up like a sport. I mean, there are small towns everywhere where fans save up all their extra money to buy merchandise, to go to the games and buy season tickets for the, fan, the, the teams and that they love heart and soul. And they don't want to hear that the club is having financial challenges. They go because they want to go enjoy the sport and escape the troubles that they might have had all week, right? And so it has to show up to the fans as a sport. And then, of course, the players, right? I mean, they sacrifice so much to play the game that they love. And so for them, it has to show up as a sport. So it's both. It's a, it's a business. It needs to be run like a business because a lot of people depend on that. And it's a sport to the fans and to the players. No, that's awesome and amazing, Nancy. Now, thank you for that answer. And, and, and just sort of linking into that, obviously, we're going to delve into to Mercury 13 and speak about multi-club ownership models, how it works, how it operates, and how how you guys are doing it as well. But just obviously, I noticed, obviously, your background in data. You worked at IBM. 
you were chief marketing mm-hmm. and product officer at Stats Perform. Just sort of talk to me about your previous experiences and, and how sort of data feeds into football. Are we using enough of it? It's a buzzword right now, but is there any <laughs> untapped potential as well within data and how, how we're oh. currently utilizing it in football? Tons of untapped potential. So my entire career, I have been a data nerd. I've always been fascinated by the power of data. And so I've had this long-term love affair with data, but also with sports. I was the kid that tried just about every sport you could think of um, to play softball, basketball, volleyball, um, track. I think that we had these these things called intramural sports where basically after school, you could go and in a very kind of disorganized way, play sports like floor hockey and football. Um, so I tried everything, loved everything, wasn't great at everything, really was not great at basketball. Um, but I never as a kid thought that I could have a career, a professional career in sport, just didn't ever seem to be an option. So I, when I came out of college, I landed in consulting, got recruited by IBM and really, really fell in love with data and analytics because I could see how much it can change people's lives. It can make people smarter. It can make businesses run better. It can help cure diseases. And so I was always curious about the sports side of things. And so I was, you know, jumped at the chance when I got the chance to go become the chief product and marketing officer um, at Stats Perform to, to kind of combine those two loves. And one of the great lessons that I learned from IBM, one of, the, one of many, I think, was that as you progress in leadership, you learn to bring your skills and your values and your experiences to each role. And so coming into that role, I was bringing in two decades of big tech data and AI experience from multiple um, roles. I did, I was in marketing, I was in product, I was in development. I, um, I did combination jobs. I did digital transformation all around data and AI. So um, we did some great things. We built some great products, um, accelerated some, some innovation. So really proud of the stuff that I did, what we did when we were there, um, when I was there. But what I did see when I was there was this glaring inequity around women's football. And part of it I saw with the data side of things, but just kind of in general. And so I started to read and I started to listen to podcasts and I started to talk to people in the industry. And the more I learned, the more, honestly, I got kind of riled up about it. And the the same energy and passion that kind of um, made me an advocate of women in tech also kind of started to push me about women in sports. And so I, um, I started to think like, maybe this is where I'm supposed to be taking my knowledge and experience next. And so when Mercury 13 came along, um, it was great chance for me to jump in and, and start to combine that passion and experience that I've had, because I could see the, the gap in the data coverage alone and, and what that was, how it was kind of holding back the sport. I mean, for example, um, if you don't have great video coverage of, of the women's side, which we don't, um, it, then you're going to have less data collection because a lot of the data collection companies use video to collect data. And so I understood the sports ecosystem. I understood where the, where the challenges were. And, you know, Mercury 13 gave me a chance to come in and kind of use my voice and my passion and my experience to help 
change things for the be- for the better of the game. That's awesome, Nancy. And, and, and there's there's lots to unpack there as well. And I think I'm really fascinated <laughs> to understand is obviously the, the whole idea behind Mercury behind Mercury 13 is the whole idea of the 13 women and and, and, mm-hmm. and going to space. Just sort of talk to me about the the structure of the of the team itself and the different expertise that are effectively coming together and feeding in and how you kind of envisage this multi-club ownership model to work mm-hmm. because currently in the men's game, we see different models. I think the one that people point point a lot to is the Red Bull model. Then we have the City mm-hmm. Football Group model and various sure. others that, 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 that are currently existing now. Um, how do you... How do you sort of envisage it what it's sort of working for you guys in women's football so right all of those are great examples of multi-clubs that exist today that were really built with the men's game in mind now that doesn't mean that there weren't some great lessons to be learned right i think man city or city group has done an amazing job of globalization i think this is incredibly important even for the women's game i think um Red Bull has done a great job on the shared services and shared information. Same with City. They've built like one single database across all of their teams. Those are all really, really smart things to do. But we have a theory that the multi-club ownership group is the, one of the best things that can happen to the women's game, that it works really, really well in the women's game. Because when you think about it, when the women's teams in most cases are kind of in a multi-club shared services right now, but they're not getting their share of the services. And so, you know, what I think we can bring to the table is to really be able to inject some capital and some resources and some expertise that these clubs are longing for. You know, not all of them have the luxury of having somebody who can do any kind of data analytics or game analysis or opposition analysis or or help with scouting, right? Um, not all of them have the have a have a sporting director, right? So some just really lack a lot of direction. Um, some don't have expertise around commercialization, uh, which is really, really important. I mean, this is kind of how most women's teams actually create revenue is around the sponsorships and and media side. And so when you look at the group at Mercury 13, we have this combination of, you know, the, the, the data side and the technology side, we have the, the players that have the, the expertise around football operations. We have commercial expertise. We have business expertise, right? Um, and I think all of that can be brought to bear in, in a scalable way that actually will help significantly the resources that they don't have today. No, that's super useful, Nancy, because I think building on that as well is I think one of the big things that people talk about multi-club ownership is about the synergies and the ability mm-hmm. to share data. And a lot of the time it is around yeah. sharing data and pooling resources together and effectively driving driving economies of scale. But as we know, with, with any model, there's also some cons and, and some skeptics as well. And I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who operate some of these models. And one of the things that people always talk about is I think one of the, the first ones I'd love to sort of delve into is in terms of that due diligence and sourcing of clubs and how you go around mm-hmm. effectively bringing together a, a, a pool and portfolio of clubs because every club has its own uniqueness, every club has its mm-hmm. own identity, its own DNA. So how, how do you effectively want to bring together these clubs and source them? Is it a case of having 
a main flagship club and other feeder clubs feeding into that? Is it clubs of the similar size or, or different levels? I'd, I'd love to know. Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're definitely not going to do the feeder club, marquee club kind of a thing. I think that's one of the things that we've, one of the lessons we've learned from the men's side that people don't like, <laughs> right? Um, what we do is we have a very deliberate and um, very detailed way of looking and evaluating clubs that really are looking at different types of things, the football operations, their commercial capabilities, right? Because our our whole thesis is that we want to build this differently. Um, we know that in all in many cases, football hasn't been a sustainable business. <laughs> We've got lots of ex examples of that. So if we can focus on how we make this sustainable, we've got the second mover's advantage on the women's side. Everyone is extremely open-minded on how to build this better. So we know that it's better for us to focus on revenue that we can control. That's around the, the commercializing side of football for women's football. And there is this huge opportunity there um, that's truly untapped. Because if we can focus on the fan, this fan that everybody's talking about that we don't really know for sure. And I think that's one of the great things that we'll be we'll be really focusing on is figuring out even more deeply across the clubs that we own, who is this fan? How do we create a great experience for them? And sharing that information, that's not just going to be helpful for us building a great experience at the club level, but also for the sponsors as well, because they're going to want to tap into um, you know, who this fan is and how they can actually connect with that fan with their brand. But also think about how that scales from a sponsorship perspective, like, you know, we'll have, we'll have more detailed information across multiple clubs and regions and countries for the sponsors, depending on how they want to structure their campaigns and activations. So that part's really, really exciting. I think um, being able to build this much more sustainably is the main goal. And so when we look at clubs and we're looking, obviously we're looking at the operations capability, we're looking at their locations and how commercial, how much we can do from a commercial perspective, all of that goes into play when we're evaluating the clubs. And we've got this very detailed diligence process that we've been doing. Um, and I think the biggest challenge is that how we can only choose one club per country per the rules. So that's probably the hardest part. And then speed, right? Like how, we need to move fast because when you look at the valuations in the US as as a comparable because there's it's hard to do a comparable in, in in the in Europe right now but in the US you look at the the recent valuations that Sportico put out i mean let's talk about the top of the heap there Angel City which wasn't didn't even finish at the top of the league table right and it's a brand new franchise essentially um they <laughs> they went from like 3 million to 180 million in 3 years uh, now that might be overblown from a valuation perspective, but it, but I think it shows you how quickly this is moving. And then when you look at all the other key growth indicators, the audience is going up. The fact that here in the US for NWSL, we just negotiated a new media contract that's 40 times bigger than the last one. Um, the changes that you are hearing going on even in the UK around the new co, right? And seeing this as a new opportunity. Um, 
and really trying to accelerate and expand on that, all of those leading indicators are showing us that we've got to move fast. <laughs> so oh, speed, speed and choosing one club, I think those are our biggest challenges, but the, the synergies we can get and the resources we can bring to accelerate the growth within these clubs is really what's the most exciting opportunity. No, it is 100% exciting. I spoke to, I had on the podcast, Tatiana Hyena, who's Chief Sporting Director of the NWSL and what they're doing over there is amazing. Even just even if you just look at the valuations that you mentioned there, or BFC, the, the, the new mm -hmm. franchise is going to be coming next year. And even just the, the, the franchise fee alone, it's even in comparison yeah. to, to some of the, the clubs and the valuations over here, it's just a completely different scale, which shows the, the growth and the trajectory of the women's football right now. And the funny thing is, and Paul, think about this. It's not even a huge sport here in the States. Like, think about how big this will get once we can get to the place where we can truly accelerate the growth in Europe, where football is huge. I think even an interesting thing about when we're talking about multiple ownership, and I want to really understand how, how the data and the operations is, is really going to be effective, because speaking to people who work within multi-club ownership groups, some of them are working across five, six, seven, eight, nine different clubs. They talk about the drain it is on management time, <laughs> having to manage across operationally. Just, just sort of talk to me about the ways in which you guys believe that you can kind of cut through that, utilize data to kind of have those sort of centralized systems that, that you sort of alluded mm -hmm. to as well to kind of really alleviate. Because typically what you tend to have is maybe like a VP of, of football across across the across the group, and then you have heads of recruitment, different sporting directors across across each club, for example, and then obviously that mirrored across maybe finance and legal and et cetera. How, how do you mm -hmm. almost aim to to cut through that that drain on management time? So I think you've got to be really pragmatic, right? You can't look at a multi-club involvement the same way as if you own a single club, right? If you go in with that theory, then you're, you're probably not going to do very well. The club has to be, has to have enough local support and sustainability promise for us to be able to just give it that acceleration push. I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these clubs, they're so embedded in the community. We are going to be caretakers of the sustainability of that club, right? Um, and if we do a really good job, hopefully we're invited into that community. But these clubs are so embedded in the communities and so embedded with the fans that you have to kind of start with that knowledge of knowing where is the best way for you to come in and help a club. And for each one, it's going to be different, right? I think the majority of it, when you think about um, how untapped the commercial side of women's football is, is that's where we're going to be focusing a big part of our time and our expertise. But we, we do have the expertise from the football operations side as well. But the, the team can't, we, it can't be something that we have to completely restaff. Um, it's got to have enough of a foundation where it's really ready for the explosive growth. So we've, we so just we, have to choose just, very carefully in terms of Again, the, the, what we can bring and, and if it's enough for us to be able to make this a success between the two of us, because I agree. And you hear people talk about how, how much work it is to run a football club. We're not going to be running that individual football club. We're going to be like the enhanced resources that are going to help really kick it into high growth and acceleration. 
And just talk to me about culture as well. I'm always fascinated when I speak to people who work within football clubs or in and around them about culture, about fostering a high-performance culture and, and getting everyone aligned and moving, moving in the right direction. How, how, how do you guys aim to kind of bring that into, into play and, and, and really develop that and, and uh, leverage that? I think the I think culture the- that we want to build is really in two ways. First is, is the culture around the player themselves. So one of the things that I've talked about is when it comes to data, for example, is how do we do a better job of empowering the player with data? I mean, all of the systems that I've worked on in the past have been focused on the coaching staff. Right. And so we've been empowering the coach and the sporting directors with information and analysis, but not necessarily the players. And what would it look like if we could truly empower these players with information and data that when they step out on the pitch, they are fully optimized, mind and body. Right. And so I think that's really, really important. So putting those players first and empowering them to be the best that they can be. And then I think the other culture really that we want to build is the culture around the fan, like truly understanding who this fan is and how do we create that experience that is aligned with that local community, aligned with the fan and the experience, because the culture in women's sports is very, very different, right? It's, you know, there's, it's much more family oriented. Um, There are women that come to the game. There's young kids that come to the game. You know, here in the U.S., like it's it's all kids and families, and it's great to see that. And so you've got to really make sure that you're building that experience and that culture around who that fan is, and how they interact, how the how the players and the club interacts with that fan. Those are two really key things: the players and the fans. Like build the culture around those two being a success, and you're going to have great success. No, that's awesome. That's a nice place to stop for my favourite part of the show, Nancy, which is what the footy <laughs> line for. Take me away with your three statements. I'm on a bit of a roll with with this, so uh, hopefully, hopefully, I can I can win this one as well. So, um, so yeah. So, July 1999, Women's World Cup game final, one on penalty kicks, super exciting game, and. When it was over, I was there. When it was over, I caught Shannon McMillan's shin guard. All right. Second one. Yeah. One of the teams that I support in football featured Sam Kerr earlier in her career. Women's football, one of the teams I support. So so had a young Sam Kerr earlier in her career. And the last one I'm going to throw you is a non-football related one. The first time I played cricket. I hit the bat so hard, I broke my rib. So you hit you hit the ball so hard that you broke your ribs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, wow, well, well. Um, okay, I'm gonna go with the first one as true because it sounds like a story that you tell at a dinner party, and you'd be proud to <laughs> be proud to get that one over the line. So. I'm gonna go with that one as true, and I'm I'm gonna call I'm gonna call your bluff on the last one and say the last one is true as well because I know you are you did ask me if you could chuck in one that's non non football related so I think that one's true and you wanted to mention that one so the lie the lie is ah, 
the lies the middle one, but we'll find out towards the end. We'll find out towards the end. Okay. Um, okay. The way. The way you're looking at me, I know, I know I've messed it up. We'll find out <laughs> towards the end. Um, but Nancy, just just sort of jumping back into it, obviously you sort of gone through about the vision, about the strategy for for Mercury 13, um, sort of going forward. Where are you guys currently at? What's what's the next steps? And um, and yeah, it'd be good to good to sort of find out a little bit more about that. Yeah, so yeah, we so are we currently looking at several teams um in the diligence process so i'm hoping you know fingers crossed we'll be able to make an announcement fairly soon on some teams that we're acquiring and then it's really going to be rolling our sleeves up and and getting to work to see what we can do both short and long term to really make these teams a success both commercially on the pitch for the players you know making sure that they feel happy that they're in a good place that they are happy to be there that they are ready to just show up and create a really great product on the pitch um so we're really in a heads down phase right now um it's exciting it's been great to really dig into the data uh basically our processes will send out a, a bunch of questions to some teams that we're looking at and then we go into a deeper diligence process and analysis heads down over a course of a couple of weeks and then go back and forth and um, with those clubs and see if we can make it work. So, no, that's amazing. Hopefully, hopefully, something to cheer about at Christmas. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's brilliant. And, and and just just a bit of a curveball because on my last recent episode, I spoke to spoke to a lady called Claire Stewart who runs a mental well being startup for athletes focused on tracking their data and pulling that information together. And obviously, you mentioned aspects about the player and putting the player first as well. What's your, what's your overall, overall sort of view in terms of the data that, that currently exists around women's football in terms of the players, in terms of injury prevention, in terms of uh, mental well-being? Like, what more do you feel like as though can be done? Just, just out of curiosity, just kind of trying to tie in these two episodes together here. I think there's generally a lack of data in general, right? Even just plain player stats and it's unfortunate because we know that that's how fans really connect is through stats. It's how they get to know their favorite players and teams. But when you look at what's collected today, um, it's mainly the top leagues. And so we're, we're missing the rise of talent. Um, we, you know, one of the things that got me was to see that somebody like Sam Kerr, for the first part of her career, you can't find highlights on a lot of her goals. Um, and that's Sam Kerr, right? Like she's wow. a legend. So, so we need to increase the the coverage and the collections because that that feeds so much. That helps us collect more data because that's how a lot of collection happens, either through computer vision or through humans that are collecting it through broadcast. That also helps us with sponsors, right? Because it helps accessibility and and viewability of the sport. Um, and I think that that data also needs to be fed back to the players. But I have this crazy vision. I'm hoping somebody will develop it, um, which is that where you a player can, can wake up in the morning, grab their phone, answer a few questions, because in, in this age of generative AI, we should be able to have this nice natural language interface and use large language models to actually collect and correlate all this data. But they answer a few questions. And then the this virtual assistant comes back with a bunch of information for them. So it'll collect like all their biometric data, like how much they slept and maybe where they are in their cycle. 
um, it'll give them their stats and their highlights from last week, like almost like a virtual assistant. So it'll, it's kind of taking advantage of everything that probably is being collected today, but not fed back to that athlete in a way that's consumable. Um, and even, even like the injury data, like I think, you know, we all know that ACL tears are, are a killer of careers and, and rosters, especially on the women's side. And there's a lot of research that's out there about, you know, does it, is it a woman's cycle affected? Is it the turf? But none of it really is operationalized to the point where a, a player, when they step out on the pitch, knows what to do differently. And so I think that can make a huge difference in the women's game is how do we, how can we take all this information? How can we leverage today's technology like generative AI and these large language models and natural language capabilities to just make this really, really consumable? Um, for the women so that they step out on the pitch, they, they can fully manage their own body, their nutrition, their training time, what they need to do. And they might even be, a, be able to be aware of what to do differently to avoid injury. If we could do that, that would be awesome. That's my vision. That's my vision. <laughs> Another sort of question I sort of have for you before we go into the quick fire section and then find out your answers and I ask you the, the final question the what the footy question is I always find it fascinating when, whenever I speak to people who are stateside because I feel like you guys have so many interesting ideas in terms of what we could be doing differently over here particularly in European football because of the the, the sports that, that are over there in the states and I'm always fascinated by ideas but when you sort of look look across the uh, the pond what, what do you feel like we, we could be doing differently? Obviously, you've mentioned data uh, so far and other issues, but mm -hmm. even across men's football as well and, and women's football, what, what do you almost think is, 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 is missing a little bit? Like One thing I'm, I'm quite big on and, and, and people I speak to in America never get their heads around is the 3pm blackout. Um, <laughs> they, they, they don't understand why. Like I'm an investor. I'm, I'm investing into a football club. Why aren't mm -hmm. all my games being televised? Um, why is there this blackout? I don't understand it. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, what's what's the thing that you look over and think? Hang on a minute, we could be doing this differently. Is it this, is it a salary cap? Is it just just throw, uh, chuck ideas at me? Since you brought up the salary cap, I do actually think that that will help on the sustainability side of football because when you look at the big clubs where they're just spending to stay at the top division, essentially. And it's just, it's creating this, a set of clubs that are truly elite, right? And that it, you know, even though people can get promoted and demoted, it's interesting when you look at the patterns of promotion and relegation, um, it, it's easy to move up, but it's harder once you've moved down to get back up. And so like I was doing some analysis, like on the women's championship league, that 58% of the women the the clubs that are there have been there for five or more seasons, seasons? and they were yeah. ones, they that, were came ones down. that came down. But when you think about it, that, that is harder, right? Because you're, you're coming down, you have a, a higher budget and you're playing in a lower level league. So that's not sustainable. There's all sorts of adjustments and things that you've got to make. And it takes time to kind of cycle through that and then be able to move back up. And so I think having the salary cap kind of levels the playing field a little bit more because everyone's going to be on the same playing field in terms of the salaries. I think that would make things a lot more sustainable. Um, the, the accessibility, which includes the 3 p.m. back blackout for 
for watching games like that, that has to change. I mean, it, not everyone can go to a stadium. Um, and it doesn't mean you don't love the sport, right? It just means that you, you, you just don't have a chance to do it, right? I mean, for example, like my local team um, plays on Sunday. But Sunday is the day that I actually take care of one of my 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 aging moms. So I can't always get there. I try as much as I can, but it's just it's not feasible for me to always be able to free up a Sunday, for example. So I think the, that accessibility, that has to change, right? Because and people are starting to love multiple teams, which is different, right, than the past. The other thing I think that we've done really well is the whole fantasy experience. And th and that fantasy experience really helps you kind of expand your love of the sport across multiple teams. Um, and it, it helps you make a connection that's deeper because it's based on data and information. And it's not really been a big deal in football. It's I think it's starting to get a little bit better. But I think pushing more on that fantasy side, it also opens up lots of opportunities from sponsorship um, perspective. I think that can be improved. That's one thing we've, I think we've done a really great job of on the U.S. side. We're all fantasy crazy. Um, we have draft parties and, you know, it's, it's something we all do across all sports. And it's just a lot of fun. And it just kind of enhances the experience of the sport. No, that's super useful. Just reminded me, I need to do my fantasy, my fantasy team for uh, for the Premier League. Um, yes, a lot of stuff that you mentioned is super interesting. And just while I got you as well, because college sports as well is so massive in 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 the states. It's almost like yeah. in, in in some sports itself is actually even bigger than the, than the actual main. Sport oh yeah, in some particular states. Just just sort of talk to me about about that from just from an investor overview and, and just what you think of that because I know right now there's a lot of talk about NIL and, and, and how things are going going in college sports right now. Uh, uh, some of these rising stars that are rising at the college level like on the women's side right now you've got Caitlin Clark at Iowa basketball who's just absolutely huge um, and you, you want these athletes to be able to start to create have control of their brand and their image that's really really important nobody should own that especially in the college days because who knows where they're going to land right i mean obviously they're going to be in the professional space but it, it gives them so much more opportunity and also when you look at the generation before nil and and you know the early days post title nine there wasn't an opportunity for these athletes to make money on their own image but the college was, right? I mean, college football, college basketball, college volleyball now is really big business here in the States. And so we've seen some crazy crowds around the women's sport in particular, filling football stadiums for a volleyball game and for a basketball game. So it's, it's a, a really exciting growth space, but I think it's all part of this big push in round women's sports because it's like this big momentum. It's not just women's football. That's a huge opportunity. It's women's sports that is in general, um, I think finally taking its proper seat at the table, but yeah, college, I, I think that's another thing that we really do well is that's kind of our big pathway, so to speak into professional sports is how they show up on, on the college side. And we, have commercialized the heck out of college sports to the point where it is almost as big and in some cases bigger. In fact, if you talk to professional coaches, they actually would take a college gig over an NFL gig any day of the week. Wow. Any day of the week. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. It's now time to reveal. Your, I know I've got it wrong because you mentioned Sam Kerr. After I said my answer, it's like, I just know that one, but I'll, I'll let you go through the statements and take me away with your answers. Okay. So okay. the first one about the World Cup is true, but not for me. But I, I had I, to be clever and throw you on it. Um, I did, um, I did break my rib. Break my rib. Sam and- Kerr played for the Chicago Red Stars, and I took down my Red Star scarf so it wouldn't, so it wouldn't help clue you in. But so Sam uh, Kerr, so Sam people Kerr forget this. Can. This is why I wanted to put that, on there, right? that on there, right? Taking down props, Nancy, to throw me off. Wow. <laughs> I, think, I, think that's a, I think that's a what the footy podcast guest first. No, I respect <laughs> it. I respect it. No, um, brilliant, brilliant answers to 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 that guy to have lost that but you, you definitely <laughs> done me over there but fair, fair, fair enough um the last question i ask all the guests is what the footy needs to change or happen within your space yeah that's an easy one we have got to change the accessibility and the coverage of women's football because it's it's so important to so much of the ecosystem of the of the game. It's important for us to get better data collection. It's important for us to build that fan base. It's important for us to connect with the fans. It's important for us from a sponsorship perspective. Like all of this rests on us getting better accessibility and coverage of the game itself. And so that has to change for so many other things to happen uh, in women's football. And how, just, just just on that, how, how do you feel as though that stunk? I think one thing that's been brilliant is obviously taking over here in England some of the big games and the derbies to, to the larger stadiums, for example, the Manchester derby yeah, yeah. and the WSL happened at Old Trafford. I know Arsenal do a package of games at the Emirates as well. I think that's kind mm-hmm. of fantastic. How do you think? How do you think we can kind of drive that? I think we need to do more of that. And there is more coming in the 2024 season. But when you look even across the championship league at the capacity of the stadiums that that level of team plays in, it's small. Like some of them are as small as 1500. So you can't grow that audience and, and connect with fans when you're so limited with that. Right. And also the, the video coverage of the game itself, not awesome. Like, I'm on the American side, so I'm watching the games via the FA player. Really not the best. <laughs> you know, it's like one camera bird's eye view. Um, really not the best coverage. So I think putting them in the bigger stadiums, doing more of that, we can prove that we can fill the seats. It, like, I don't even think that that's a doubt anymore, but we've just got to continue to push for those facilities to for us to get the bigger stage right because i i know the fans are going to show up they're going to show up and that's going to help us with that accessibility piece that's going to help us with the coverage piece and so hopefully we'll see we are going to see more of it in 2024 but we just got to keep pushing and i think that's one of the things mercury 13 is going to bring to the table is we're going to really be focusing on how we accelerate the growth in various aspects um, and so, and we're going to, we're going to give these teams a voice and, and hopefully change what ownership looks like for women's football in the future. No, that's a great way to end it. Nancy, thank you so much for your time. Honestly, I could speak to you all day about this topic. Thank you so much for your time and all the You're best welcome. with, uh, with Mercury 13 and your other endeavors. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you loved it. And if you did give the pod a follow and a five-star review, and tell a friend to tell a friend. See you in a fortnight for the next episode. Let's go. What the footy? What the footy?
What the footy? What the footy? Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent. Imagine being a kid in primary school, now supporting Arsenal. Powerful people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know, one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans.